And that's the answer right there. Right now, we are living in one of the most contentious and divisive times in history with this side against that side and that side against this side. What would solve all of it is if we could just get a glimpse of just a small part of how holy God is. It would stop all that in a second. We'd be on our faces and there'd be no more woe is they. It would be nothing but woe is me. Woe is me. God, give us a vision of your holiness. Oh, that would solve a lot of stuff. (laughs) Last week I told you that we were going to take a pause in our series in Romans today so that I could respond to the big news that came from the highest court in our land last week. I said I wanted to take a week to let all the emotion to die down a little bit and to work through all the thoughts that were racing through my mind to try to discern which ones were from the Lord and which ones were from me. And in praying about all this, seeking the Lord, he led me to a scripture that I want to start off reading. Kind of speaks into what God is doing in all this, and we're going to come back to this later, but it's actually in Revelation chapter 19. So I'll give you a second to turn there if you have your Bibles. We're going to look at several scriptures this morning, but this one right here is going to be the basis for what I believe the Lord is saying in all this. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 7, would you stand with me as we honor God's word? Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Let's pray. God, that is what I'm asking, that you would open our eyes to see just a glimpse of your reality, your holiness, your grandeur, your awesomeness. God, it would answer a lot of questions. It would quiet so much talk. It would heal so much division. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear what you would say to us today. And, God, that we would grab hold of anything that you offer us this morning. And that we won't miss it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, let me say up front that There's probably going to be some things that I say this morning that some of you are going to disagree with. This is a contentious and emotional issue, even for people within the church. But if I do say something initially that you don't agree with, I want to encourage you not to just close me off or get up and walk out or anything like that, because more than likely... If you stick around and listen, I'm going to also say something that you're going to be surprised that you're going to agree with. Where we end up in this today is going to be a place where I'm sure the majority of you will not expect this is all heading. And so I'm asking you to just bear with it. Don't listen to what I have to say as much as you're listening to what the Spirit is saying in all this. 
And if you don't agree with something I say, that's fine. The scripture says that you, would, you should test whatever man says to you and weigh it. But don't test it and weigh it against your own opinion. Weigh it against God's word. Because that's the standard that we are all supposed to hold up and measure everything by. First of all, I believe that you need to know where we stand on this issue as a church. The decision by those five justices drew a line in the sand. And then our government has made a loud and clear statement on which side of the line they stand. And in doing so has essentially forced everyone else to basically pick a side. This is not an issue on which you can straddle that line. And if you are indifferent to this, then it just means that you do not understand the importance of what has been done. The line that was drawn is a line that divides truth from error. It divides God's ways from man's ways. And you either believe the truth of God's word or you believe that God's word really doesn't matter. The Supreme Court of the United States took upon itself the frightening proposition of asserting its authority into an area where God has not established for it to be. If the government would have been the ones that initially came up with the institution of marriage, then they would have every right to change it, speak into it, and to make laws in regards to to it, but man did not come up with marriage, God did. And it is a very big deal to him. And I promise you, it means an entirely lot more to God than the majority of us tend to realize. And so at the beginning of this response today, I think it's important to not only say where we stand on this issue, but why. Because if you are against this decision, you don't agree with it, you need to be able to articulate why you do with more than just because the Bible says it's wrong. And so I'm going to take a minute and explain this. Because when God does say something, he doesn't say it just to hear himself make a demand. It's for a very specific reason. And so we're going to look at that. Before we move on into something else, in Ephesians chapter 5, we get an indication that marriage is about a whole lot more than just two people declaring their love and dedication for one another. It's the marriage text in Ephesians that I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with, but we're going to look at it again here. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as church also is the head, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. What we can see here is that God established marriage to be a representation, a picture on earth of Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. It is an, a reflection of God's very image. In fact, the family unit, the institution of family that God designed He designed it in order to bear his image. It has his divine imprint on it. See, God's image is one of unity and community. Three separate entities, yet one, completely unified in substance. And each of his uh, uh, identities, each of, of these different aspects of him, persons of him, have specific roles within that relationship. And we can see this image reflected in the way that he designed the family. I mean, in the Godhead there, there's a, a diagram of it right there. As best as finite humans can uh, uh, give a model or describe the infinite truth of the, the Trinity of God, there's what it is. You've got the Father who loves, protects, leads, and provides for the Son, the Son who submits to and honors the Father, and the Spirit who the Bible says comes from both the Father and the Son. This imprint is reflected in the family unit. You've got the husband who loves, protects, leads, and provides for the wife who submits to and honors the husband and the children who come from both the husband and the wife. God uniquely wired women to be able to carry out the roles that he designed them for in this structure here. He uniquely wired men to be able to fulfill and carry out the roles that he designed them for in this. These roles were designed and assigned by God himself, clearly spelled out in his, in, in, in his word. I mean, if this is a reflection of God's image, his image is not the Father, the Father, and the Spirit, or the Son, the Son, and the Spirit. There are distinct roles within that, and it's the same in the reflection in the family with marriage being the central thing in that that binds it together. Several times in Scripture, God makes statements of displeasure at the distortion of his image. When he first created Adam, he looked down on him and said, it is not good for man to be alone. Why did he say that? Because he felt sorry for Adam? No, because that did not accurately reflect his image as a relational being. There had never been aloneness anywhere in the nature of God. And so it was not good for something he created to distort his image. In Malachi, God said, I hate divorce. Why? Because it distorts the image that a unified marriage is supposed to portray of God. Now, it would just be one thing for the Supreme Court to change the definition of marriage. That in itself would be bad enough. 
But what these five justices did not only went against God's design, but at the same time they gave hearty approval to a behavior and a lifestyle that God does not condone. Remember last week I said how the law points out just how depraved we really are and that anything God commands, man rejects. Anything God forbids, man desires. We're in the middle of going through the book of Romans, and in just the third week of that series, we were looking at the end of chapter 1. And in there, we saw how Paul explicitly lists homosexuality as just one of the direct results of a failure to honor God. As far as God is concerned, there are no exceptions. There is no gray area, no ambiguity ambiguity on this issue at all. The decision by the Supreme Court was a direct assault on God's image and a blatant rejection of his word. Now we've all heard all kinds of responses to this since this has happened either against this decision or in support of it. From people in the church. Now let me just say this. Everything I'm talking about here today, I'm speaking to those in the church. Okay? Because The lost are going to sin. Sinners are going to sin. That's what they do. And we can't call sinners to not sin. We can't ask somebody to change their behavior until their heart is first changed. All right? So we don't need to get all worked up when sinners actually sin. That's what they do. But I'm talking to those of us in the church because there have been people on both sides of the issue within the church And one of the things that I've often heard that keeps coming up from those who are in defense of it is that, well, everyone has sin. We all have sin, so why highlight this one and make such a big deal and be so judgmental about this one? And yes, that is right. We all have sin. But the issue is, for Christians, what we do with that sin. As Christians, we understand the extremely high price that Jesus paid for our sin. And he did that, not so that we can continue to live in it, but so that we can be set free from it. Christians should understand that what we are to do with sin is to be grieved over it, not celebrate it. We are to bring that to Jesus, not legalize it. We are to repent of it, not affirm and condone it and throw parades for it. Yes, we all have sin, but we bring that sin to Jesus so that we don't have to continue to live in it any longer. At the end of Romans 1, after listing all these other sins with homosexuality, Paul says that those who fail to acknowledge God, the very last verse, he says, not only do they do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is what our government has done, and sadly, it's what some in the church are doing as well, giving hearty approval to it. And Scripture clearly says those who do that are failing to acknowledge God. So that's where we stand on this issue as a church, and because of the way things are headed, I truly believe that eventually we are going to pay price for taking this stance. No doubt about it. But it won't be near the price that our nation will pay for taking its stance. Because scripture is clear. There are going to be grave consequences for the actions taken 
by our highest court in the land. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, On account of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, the wrath of God will come. It will. And the only way to escape that is in Jesus, whom 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says saves us from the wrath that is to come. But here's something that we must understand and not get distracted from, church. This battle that we are in is not a battle between Christians and homosexuals. Don't make it that. If you make that the battle, then you are going to make an absolute fool of yourself and you are going to create a stumbling block for the lost to come to Christ. I have been so grieved, just as grieved as I've been over the decision by our government, I have been as grieved over the responses that I have seen and read from people who wear the name of Jesus Responding with so much hatred and venom and just degrading comments. Homosexuals don't need protest signs and political campaigns and derogatory statements hurled at them. They need the same exact thing that you and I need. They need Jesus. And just as much as God speaks against those who commit immoral acts, he speaks just as harsh to those who would prevent the loss from coming to him. He says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the depths of the sea than to keep anyone from coming to me, than for you to be a stumbling block to anyone. And that is exactly what we're doing when we're spewing venom at homosexuals. We are being a stumbling block, pushing them further away from coming to Christ than drawing them into him. Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of darkness. So don't make this a battle against people because it is not. The people are the ones who are being held captive by the real enemy. And we are called to go rescue them from that captivity in love. And so that's one end of the spectrum that some in the church have responded this way to. I'm going to talk about the other end of the spectrum. That has been evident too. Talking about responding in love. There seems to be many in the church who have bought into the world's definition of love that says that it means that we're just to be accepting and condoning of any and all behaviors. It says real love doesn't judge, it accepts. And as a result, we've got Christians putting rainbow colors on their profile pages, believing that in doing that, they're showing love to people. That is not love because it fails to recognize that the wages of sin is death. If my child wants to play in the middle of the street, I would not be a loving parent by standing there and letting them do that and standing in the front yard, clap them for them while they do it. My love for my child compels me to tell them no and to warn them of the dangers that are doing that and to go get them and pull them away from the very thing that is eventually going to kill them. If someone I love picks up a snake not realizing that it's poisonous, I would not be loving them by saying, oh, that's okay, y'all just let him play with the snake. He's having so much fun. Who am I to judge him or deny him his happiness for playing with that snake? 
No. Love demands me to say, drop the snake. It's going to kill you and I don't want to see you die. Real love then demands that we say to the sinner, this is wrong. I love you too much to condone what you are doing. God has something so much better for you and I want to see you get his best and this is not it. But here's the main thing I want to point out today. Just as I said last week, God's hand is actually all over this. This did not come as a surprise to him. In fact, he's the one that even allowed this to all take place. And here's why I believe he did. And this takes us back to that text in Revelation. Verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Got a trivia question for you. If there is one day that you could pick out of a woman's entire life to say on this day she looked her absolute best, what day would that be? Her wedding day. Yes. Now, there are some exceptions to that. I I recognize that. But as a rule, I mean, that is the day. There is more preparation gone into looking her best on that day than any other day in her life. Many brides begin the preparation process as soon as the engagement begins by dieting and exercising and tanning and getting a hold of their hairstylists and makeup artists to make sure they're going to be available for that whole day. And on the day of the wedding, from the time that she wakes up until the time that she walks down the aisle, every minute is spent getting ready. A bride goes through a lot of preparation for the moment that she is presented to her groom. And I believe God wired women this way. Because, again, it reflects his relationship with his bride. In this text, it says that when Jesus returns, the bride of the Lamb will have made herself ready. The truth is, if it were left just up to us to get ourselves ready, ready, Jesus' return would be a very long time coming. Because we are not equal to the task. We are incapable of making ourselves ready. But Jesus, by his grace, gives us what we need in order to be ready. Our part is accepting what he gives us. And what I see in God allowing what's going on in our nation right now, and especially with this decision, is all a part of the church's getting ready process. Because I'm telling you right now, this has a whole lot more to do with the church than it does the Supreme Court, the United States of America, homosexuals, or anything else. God orchestrates everything for his church. And he's doing something in us right now. Getting us ready involves molding us more and more into his image. Molding us into his image means removing things that don't accurately reflect that image. In order to remove those things, he first has to bring those things to the surface and expose them so that then he can remove them. 
Last week, we looked at how God gave the law of Moses in order to expose the sin in man's heart. Doing that with a view to his cure eventually in Jesus. And I believe that is essentially what he is doing here with this a law that he has allowed in the Supreme Court. He is exposing something in the church that we need to repent of. I mean, I've already mentioned two things that immediately pop to the surface. He's exposed the fact that there's some in the church who have bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, hatefulness in their heart towards those that they don't agree with. That needs to be gotten rid of. That does not reflect God's image. But he also has exposed the deception that some have fallen into thinking that it's okay to just give hearty approval to this. That doesn't reflect his image. That needs to be gotten rid of as well. But as many of us have been reeling from this decision, one of the questions that keeps coming up is, how did this happen? How did we come to this place in this country? And so we start pointing fingers and looking for someone to blame, and there has been no shortage of finger pointing going on. We're pointing at the government, pointing at the Supreme Court, pointing at the president, pointing at homosexuals. But I want to show you where we really need to be looking. Luke chapter 6. Starting in verse 39. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? The pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. How has our country... Founded to be a Christian nation, set on Christian principles, come to this. How has a nation where over 75% of the population identify themselves as Christian and only less than 3% of the population identifies themselves as homosexuals, how were they allowed to get their agenda pushed through? I'll tell you how. Because we allowed it to happen. Plain and simple. As God's people, we are the ones who are called and empowered to affect the culture. And you know what? This decision by the Supreme Court is not the worst thing that has ever come from our judicial or legislative branches in regards to marriage. It's not. The worst thing that actually happened to marriage in this country happened in California on January 1st, 1970 in a law signed by Ronald Reagan of all people. And it created a domino effect to the point where now every state in the union has enacted the same law and the church did nothing. We actually grabbed onto it and said, yeah, I want some of that. 
It was a law that allowed for no-fault divorce. Church, who are we kidding? Divorce has done more damage to the sanctity of marriage than homosexuality ever will. And I know this is going to hit a lot of people in here, but I want you to listen to me. In no way do I want to just paint a broad stroke over everyone that has ever gone through a divorce. I understand that there are some of you who were involved in circumstances that were out of your control and you still grieve over that. I'm not talking to those of you who have had to go through extreme physical abuse or rampant infidelity, so I don't want you getting under any condemnation for that today, or those of you who went through a divorce before you even knew Christ, because that's under the blood. But if you claim to be a God-fearing follower of Christ and you are okay with ending a marriage just because the two of you couldn't work things out or because you weren't happy anymore, then don't tell me that you are outraged at what is now being done to the sanctity of marriage. If you are living with or sleeping with someone that you are not married to, do not pretend to be outraged at this attack on the sanctity of marriage. Because you have already shown that the sanctity of marriage means very little to you. Sexual immorality is sexual immorality, no matter if it's homosexual or heterosexual. And because we have turned a blind eye to and gone so far as embracing one, we are now having to deal full force with the other. We've been screaming out against the Supreme Court for redefining marriage, but the truth of the matter is the church has already embraced a definition of marriage that looks nothing like what God designed it to be. We have embraced the lie of the world that says the primary purpose of marriage is not to glorify God and not to reflect His nature. The primary purpose of marriage is for me to be happy. And we, when we make that the purpose of marriage, then when the marriage fails to live up to its purpose of making us happy, the natural recourse to that then is to end it and go find somebody that will make us happy. If you make happiness the number one goal of your marriage, you are selling yourself way short because God's ultimate purpose for marriage offers us something far more fulfilling and meaningful, and joyful, and deeper than the shallowness of mere happiness. But that's what we've done. And it's one of the reasons I believe we're in the situation we're in today. Look, if marriage is the watered-down, self-serving version that we have made it out to be, then homosexuals actually deserve every right to that. They do. If the sole purpose of marriage is just for two people to be happy together, then there is no reason why we should deny homosexuals that because, in fact, our Constitution actually says that one of the inalienable, unalienable rights that we have in this country is the right to the pursuit of happiness. If that's what marriage is, then the Supreme Court made the right decision. So if, if you think about it, the Supreme Court actually didn't redefine marriage. All they did was say that homosexuals have a right to the way the church has already defined it. And they're right. If that's what it is, then they do.
It's a whole other issue if it means a holy institution designed by God for specific roles of a man and a woman to glorify his name and reflect his nature. If the primary purpose of marriage is not my mere happiness, but to mold me more into the image of Christ, and that's a whole other issue there, but that is not the standard that the church has been holding up, not even close. I want to read you a quote from an article I found that was written back in 2010 way before the Supreme Court took this issue up. A man named Bryce Christensen of Southern Utah University wrote this. Commenters miss the point when they oppose homosexual marriage on the grounds that it undermines traditional understandings of marriage. It is only because traditional understandings of marriage have already been severely undermined that homosexuals are now laying claim to it. Andrew Sullivan, you may have heard of, he's a popular writer and blogger, and he is an outspoken advocate in support of same-sex marriage. I want you to listen what he wrote and pay attention to this. The world of no-strings heterosexual hookups and 50% divorce rates preceded gay marriage. All homosexuals are saying is that under the current definition, there is no reason to exclude us. If you want to return straight marriage to the 1950s, then go ahead. But until you do, the exclusion of gays is a denial of basic civil liberty. Gays do not want a marriage in the traditional mold, only the watered-down version that exists today. My God, what have we done? So before we go pointing fingers at anyone else, We need to take a cold, hard look in the mirror. And when we look there, we will see God's mercy at work in calling us back to repentance. Back to what we have gotten away from. The Bible says that it is His kindness that leads us to repentance. The only way to experience the glory of his grace and mercy and love and forgiveness, refreshment and revival is by owning the wickedness in our own hearts and sitting in the dust and ashes and crying out to God for mercy. He will withhold no good thing from those who call out to him from that place. The king is making ready his bride for his return. And he is offering us something for us to get ready. He's offering us repentance. It's time for the church to get off of our high horse and onto our faces before God. This is a time that we need to take a stand for marriages, true meaning of marriage like we never have before. I'm telling you right now, if you're in a marriage right now that you're struggling in, I beg you, exhaust all efforts at getting help. Don't let pride get in the way of that. Please get help from Christians who can come around you and speak truth into that situation. We need to show the world just how glorious marriage can be because what we have shown them has led us 
to this. So let's hold up the correct standard. Let's turn from the selfish gorging of our own flesh. Let's get on our faces. Let's repent in dust and ashes. Let's humble ourselves. Let's pray. Let's seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, church. We are facing a tremendous time right now. Said it before, and I believe that this is the best time in all of history to be a Christian. We read the early church stuff and we go, man, I wish I could have lived that. But I'm telling you, what we're fixing to enter right now, the saints in heaven are looking down and going, man, I wish I could have lived through that. It's an exciting time. And I believe that souls are ripe for harvest right now. That's what God's doing. He's plowing the ground. But first, we've got to get our own house in order. And that's what God's calling us to do, inviting us to do, to partake of his mercy, his grace, his glorious goodness by repenting of our ways and turning to Jesus. Nothing but good things there. Let's pray. Hmm. God, I stand before you up here on this platform now on behalf of this church body. Confessing our sin before you. Confessing, putting our own selfish wants and desires over the truth of your word. Confessing, chasing after the world instead of chasing after you. And confessing, being judgmental at pointing out the speck in others' eyes as we have been walking around with a giant log in ours. So God, I repent. I repent for making a holy institution of marriage something other than you intended it to be. Lord, let my marriage be something that only points to you. God, I don't know what you're doing to all Christians in this country right now, but I know in this room, in this church body, I know that you're speaking to these Christians and you're calling us to repentance. So Lord, I pray that we would do that. God, would you let your will be done in this place, in our hearts. Lord, give us a hunger for your word that we've never had before so that we will know when we start to run after something that doesn't line up with it, God, then it will, it will check us and we will stop that. Lord, return us back to our first love that you talk about in the scriptures. God, we have left it. We have left our first love and it has led us to this situation that we are in now. God, would you return us back there? Lord, would you remove the things that you are exposing in us right now? God, I pray that we would be at a place where we are essentially laying in dust and ashes going, God, I need mercy.
Lord, I thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the goodness that you have in store for us. Thank you that you are leading us to places of complete joy. And I pray for those right now that the enemy is trying to use us to bring them under condemnation. That you stop that right now in Jesus' name. And you bring them into the grace that is found in your love. Knowing that you can be the only one to throw their sin as far as the east is from the west. Lord, change us right now. Holy Spirit, come and do what you do best. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do the...